The Silence of God by James Carse, uh, Meditation 3, Part 6 of this reading. What God can properly give? Speak to God from your heart. If you speak from your heart, you'll speak to God. And if you do speak to God, you will ask for nothing less than life. But we close our eyes against our hearts, and instead of asking for life, we pursue our desires for a different life, thereby asking for something we cannot have, because such asking is contradictory, and therefore not asking at all. There are good reasons for not asking, for denying the beggardom of the heart. For one thing, there are terrible risks involved in begging. In fact, risks we are sure to lose in matters of the spirit, where gain is identical to loss. But there's a more powerful reason for not asking. And there is only one thing more terrifying than losing, and that is receiving. In this meditation, we are concerned with what God gives in response to our asking. With what does God answer prayers? What does God offer, and why is it so terrifying to open ourselves to it? So far, I have left the issue rather abstract by saying it is life that we ask for. In this meditation, I hope we can move from the abstract towards the concrete by way of giving substance to the anxiety necessarily involved in asking for life. I begin by appealing to the simplest possible example, the begging for life by infants. The most striking characteristic of the pleading of babies is that they ask without first attempting to determine whether those who hear are those who are capable of responding. They do not even first look to see if there is anyone to hear them. In no way do they depend on their own ability to ascertain the reliable sources of life. They simply ask. They do, they do not even trust those they ask. They ask first. It's only later that they learn some persons are more to be trusted than others. We adults are not so careless, so desperate, so undefended as babies. We've learned that there are great differences between persons as to their resources, their availability, their talents, and their relatability and reliability. If babies reach out for life even before they've learned whom they can trust to respond, we reach out only after we have learned how far someone is to be trusted. We calculate our trust with great care, always concerned to reduce our risk to cover our vulnerabilities. But there is something elusive, perhaps even paradoxical, in the nature of trust. We often attempt to arrange situations of trust in such a way that trust comes to resemble control. It is true, to be sure, that when I place my automobile in the hands of a mechanic or my body in the hands of a surgeon, I trust them to do something for me that I cannot do for myself. And I certainly expect them to act in my self-interest even when I am not altogether sure what it is that constitutes my self-interest. But note carefully here that I have subtly hedged my trust. I make certain first uh, that these persons are both competent to do the job in which I assign them, and that they are moreover good-willed towards me. Since they will, in all likelihood, do what I ask them, uh, I'm essentially in a position of power, and I know before I go to them that they will do as I request. This may be what often goes by the name of trust, but it is rather more strongly resembling obedience. However superior the mechanic and the surgeon may be uh, uh, to me in skill, they're nonetheless in my employ, and therefore instruments of my control. 
This kind of trust shuts off any true begging and stands at the opposite end of the spectrum from the child who asks for life out of complete impotence. I should add, though, perhaps it's obvious, that trust of this compromised sort is not only found in professional situations where there is an exchange of money. It's even more common in closer personal relations where we learn with each other how much we can expect others to do for us on the basis of pity or guilt or even love. I count on my friends knowing that they love me to act on my behalf even when they occasionally do so in ways that are painful to me. What I'm getting at here is that whenever we allow our trusting relationships to be confused with power or control, we have abandoned genuine radical trust and have ceased being suppliants with each other, acting as though we are actually sufficient in ourselves for all that we may need or want. True trust has an altogether different quality to it. I can trust only those persons or powers over whom I have absolutely no control. I'm not recommending that we arrange our society so that each person is encouraged to act without regard for anyone else's expectations. Very quickly, we would have no society at all. There are degrees of societal influence and control that are indispensable to life itself. As I've indicated in an earlier meditation, we engage each other in a variety of contractual arrangements that guarantee a sufficient social order. And to do so requires that we live as suppliants with each other. I cannot make a payment of money to you unless you agree to accept it as money. And I cannot have my children educated unless there are those who respond to my pleas for a safe, nourishing environment. We fulfill each other's expectations in these matters far more than we usually realize. However, and this is the critical point, if we only fulfilled each other's expectations, we would cease altogether to grow and develop as complete human persons. We would have a society without variation, a society without a soul, like so many ants or a colony of bacteria. If we're dependent on each other for the order that makes life possible, or even more dependent on each other for the kind of disorder that makes life human, but what sort of disorder am I speaking of? If I should have complete control over my social environment, that is, to fulfill all the popular ideals of adulthood, I should also lose all possibility of genuine dialogue with other persons. Indeed, they would cease even to be other persons at all, since they would all be but repetitions of myself. Therefore, what is needed is that others relate to me in ways that call from me resources and responses that I need to be human, but did not otherwise experience as needs at all. Only when you come to me from outside the comfortable patterns of all my expectations can I act in ways that call for inner change and self-discovery on my part. I expected my wife before we married to be a loyal, uncritical supporter in all my professional and personal struggles. I expected my children to be dutiful, high-achieving laborers towards the goals that I had cherished most for myself. I expected blacks to be humbly grateful for their second great uh, manumission in the 60s by white liberals like myself. I expected my students to have automatic respect for my erudition and to value the disp disp dispassionate pursuit of truth above all other ends. That none of these and similar expectations had the merest correspondence to the way that these persons actually responded, 
I now have to count as the most important sources of growth in my life. The experience of not getting what I wanted has been far more significant and shaping than the experience of getting what I wanted. Not because I had to learn to settle for less than I had, but because I had to learn I could be so much more than I was. Of course, no one is made to grow. Growth is always a choice. Uh, when my expectations are refused, I do not have to respond by reaching to new resources within myself. I can hold out against those who have disappointed me, finding ways of repeatedly demanding that my sense of order, my priorities and values be adhered to by others. I can turn inward with my resentments, disdainful of a world as disordered as this one. I may also adhere to the more closely to these forms of false trust where persons can be counted on to act in ways that favor my views and desires. I'll design my political commitments by such a strategy and limit my personal associations to those social bodies that resist the very kinds of disorder that trouble me. I can choose to grow by giving up an attempt to control those around me, or I can choose to stand fast, listening only to echoes of my own voice. The description of radical trust I'm offering does not, however, urge that we foster disorder merely for the sake of growth. The point is subtle, but it's crucial. If I intentionally spread chaos around myself, thereby forcing myself and others around me to act with greater resourcefulness, I'm engaging only in another form of self-echoing. But it is but a self but it is but a self-deceiving scheme of fulfilling my own expectations without appearing to do so. The deeper view here, the act of radical trust itself, can be stated finally only in paradoxical form. I must trust you to do something I cannot expect you to do. I must count on you to do which I cannot even imagine in prospect. Note here that the emphasis is not on what you do. It's on my attitude towards what you do, my disposition towards the unfinished future. If I were courageous enough to expect you to do what I cannot expect, I will find that you will repeatedly offer the very challenges to my inwardness that make growth possible. If I'm open to surprise, you will most certainly surprise me. If I genuinely trust you, I can expect you to do exactly what I do not want, but exactly what I need for growth. And this is, I believe, what Luther had in mind when he made his famous remark that God answers our prayers by refusing them. I initiated this discussion of genuine radical trust as a way of entering more deeply into the matter of asking from the heart. I observed at the beginning of this meditation that there are terrible risks involved in this kind of begging because what we're asking for is nothing less than life itself. What I then attempted to show is that what we ordinarily call trust is not trust at all, but a kind of control, a minimizing of risk. If we are really to trust another, it must be over someone over whom we cannot exercise our will at all. If the nature of radical trust is clear, as I've described it, I hope it aids in focusing our attention on the very odd character of our trust in God. It is a trust that understands perfectly that God is least of all to be influenced by our intentions. In the case of God, as Luther's provocative remark suggests, we can expect only surprise. 
turning towards God in the beggardom of our hearts, we will put all that we have and are under the greater, the greatest possible danger. For the greatest possible danger is not that we'll lose our lives, it is rather that we will lose our lives for the sake of a new life. Assume for a moment that what I've been writing here is not a meditation, but a dramatic piece. At the conclusion of the final point, imagine that the house lights go down and I quietly exit. The lights come up immediately on a sober gentleman dressed as a theologian. While he is evidently a rational and academic personage, the audience can detect some distress in his posture and tone in his voice. He begins by conceding to the audience that the discussion of trust that they've just been entertaining uh, has a good deal of superficial cleverness in it, and on its own terms it's not to be controverted. But then he insists that it's a bald distortion of one of the grandest of theological doctrines. He pauses for a moment and then solemnly speaks the single word, grace. Because the previous speaker has so emphasized the risk and danger of our relationship to God, calling on Luther's typically exaggerated remark for support, he overlooks the fact that with God all things are possible. Although God is God and perhaps all possible, and perhaps beyond all possible human manipulation, God still does listen. It is a matter of the greatest religious truth, our theologian declares, his voice rising, that God is faithful to those who believe may be trusted to work toward the good in all things. And what is more, all that God does is done without the least expectation of, of payment on the part of the faithful. This is precisely what the word grace means. The kind of talk we heard from the previous person on the stage uh, weights the danger and risks of faith much too heavily, omitting the deep promise of the gospel that God pours out in great abundance of life to those who ask. The house lights go down, and I find myself back in the center of attention. Yes, I concede to the theologian. I did press very heavily on one side of the discussion, but I then defend myself only because everybody's already familiar with the other and perhaps has even stopped to listen. When we say that with God all things are possible, we have the terrible habit of assuming this means that it is possible for God to do whatever we want. I wonder what our stage theologian thought at this point. Did he mean to say that it's possible for God to do whatever we want, or that it's possible for God to do whatever God wants? If the sober gentleman meant this remark in the former way, it has the unfortunate consequence of silencing God, making the divine will dependent upon our will. We become the, the captain, God the soldier. This is the reasoning of the turbaned brute within us. The theologian could have also neutralize Luther's quotation by one of Paul's. If God is for us, who can be against us? Here it does seem at first glance that God is offered as an ally who will strengthen us in the struggle with our enemies, guaranteeing victory in every instance. But to read it like this is to distort it. For the entire declaration hangs mattingly from the first word, if. This great if stands between us and every statement we make about God's intentions. The if demolishes any certainty we might have in the knowledge of God and leaves all remarks permanently tentative. I do not want to speak for our theatrical theologian, supposing that uh, in his use of the word 
grace, he's washed it clean of the mighty if. He may very well know that to claim absolute freedom for God is to invite this if back into all of our thoughts uh, about and actions towards God. But I think I should say here that theologians have historically had a difficult time with the doctrine of absolute grace, for they could not easily admit that we have no influence whatsoever over the supremely free God. In fact, I think it's useful here to take the next three paragraphs for a brief review of some of the elements in the theological struggle over the doctrine of grace. The doctrine is utterly simple when it has only to do with the freedom of God. Theologians have generally agreed that God is absolutely free, except where that or an act is illogical or contradictory. God cannot make something fall down and up at the same time, for example, and the difficulties emerge when we try to include in the doctrine of grace the possibility that God might also do what we want God to do. In its strongest form, God appears quite indifferent to our wishes. There must be a way the doctrine can be modified to eliminate divine indifference. Medieval theologians, in particular, became extremely clever in cutting away at the harshness of the doctrine of absolute grace, while never abandoning the fundamental claim that God alone can save us, they did teach in a, various, in a variety of ways that God cares whether we care to be saved. It does not seem reasonable to say that God will save those who openly resist salvation and in their heart detest God. It would follow, then, that the first movement in grace is not God's but, our own, but ours. We must first move towards God from the heart, and then God will respond. God will wait until we first do what is possible for us to do within ourselves. Uh, facere quod in se est. Uh, even if that action is exceedingly modest in scope. While this may be a most reasonable modification of absolute grace, it nonetheless radically altered the nature of the relationship between the human and the divine. It is true that it has the effect of making God responsive to us, and not merely reckless in absolute indifference. It makes God a listener. Hmm. Yeah, it makes God a listener. Yeah, but at the same time, this modification insists that God also remains powerful and that God's power be responsive to our own will to the degree that a genuine movement of the heart towards God would not be refused. In this sense, God's listening takes the form of obedience. The obedience of a trusted ally, the silence of God, is now an imposed silence, no longer the silence of expectation. This compromise in the doctrine of grace was serious enough that it gave rise to the Protestant Reformation. Luther, following the teachings of Augustine more than a thousand years earlier, insisted that there was no way God's absolute freedom could be compromised without making God less than God. Augustine had said that grace was uh, prevenient, that is, it comes before all else. It comes before even the heart's movement towards God. Luther agreed, let God be God, and he demanded, 
but he was also concerned that we not think in consequence that God need not therefore be concerned with the longing of the human heart. Strongly influenced by the biblical picture of Christ, Luther taught that God does not come to us in glory, but in suffering. We do not assemble before the heavenly throne as the mute auditors of God's imperative word, but stand at the foot of the cross where God is present in perfect silence. Luther did not compromise God's absolute grace in the least. He presented it rather as a grace of expectation, rather than a grace of power. God comes to us first as a listener, not as a speaker. God comes then uh, not when we call. God is there, then we call. If grace is understood in this Augustinian and uh, Lutheran way, we can see more completely how it's related to the kind of radical trust I discussed earlier. To let God be, be God is to take leave of any thought that we can have any influence on the divine will. Even if we're certain that God loves us, we can have no certainty whatsoever about how this love will express itself, or even that we can recognize it as love. To put it in another way, the certainty that God loves us must always contain within itself the great divine if. The faithful know that they're in the hands of God, but they also know that they have no hand of their own on God. I must concede that by emphasizing that our trust in God must be a radical trust that takes the divine if into itself, I have made the silence of God even more formidable. God seems more and more remote, and there's nothing recognizable in the divine mind, no pattern of actions we can depend on. It's one thing to say that God's silence is the silence of listening, but it's quite another to say that we can actually speak to a God so silent we know we can know nothing about divine reality, a God whose mind remains a complete cipher. How do we speak to someone we do not know, whom we cannot see or hear, who never speaks back at the other end of the phone? What is worse, when Christians insist that this is a God who listens, they do so on the basis that God became one of us, living our life and dying our death. But this is a harsh teaching. It's almost like saying that God does not only speak back, but he hung up the, uh, the phone 2,000 years ago. For all I know, our imagined theologian may be embarrassed by this latter difficulty, for it may be that he too was puzzled as a child when his grandmother instructed him simply to close his eyes and speak to God from his heart. He's embarrassed because the adult he wanted to be he wanted to become would have understood these matters. Now he discovers that the adult he did uh, become in the end is still the child he was. He remains a beginner in the question of prayer. We should not be impatient with him because we can understand that the question he is now pondering is one of great weight, even for adults. It's certainly the most important question to be discussed in this meditation indeed in all of these meditations. So let me try to state them as clearly as possible. How can we speak to someone when it's impossible to know whether they've heard us say or whether they've heard us at all? When we speak with each other, it seems as though we have a rather clear idea 
to whom we're speaking and how they therefore happen to hear it. We do, after all, share a language and generally have enough experience in common that our minds are not ciphers to each other. Within a tolerable margin of error, I can assume that you'll understand what I'm saying in the same way that I understand it. While this seems to be a reasonable account of our use of language with each other, it hides a fatal contradiction within itself. And to state this contradiction in its most pungent form, if I know exactly what you understand when I speak to you, it's not you to whom I'm speaking. I'm speaking to myself. It's certainly true that in most every instance we speak on the assumption that those who hear us will understand what we are saying in the same way we do. But take note of the implications in this assumption. It would seem that I have no reason to speak to you at all unless I knew that what I wish to say to you, uh, you, do not, you do not yet know or do not yet understand. Therefore, my purpose for speaking is to eliminate the differences between us to render your mind exactly to mind, even an extension of mine, and this oddly has the effect of bringing speech to an end. Once you've been properly informed, neither of us has further need to speak unless, of course, it develops that there is another matter in which you need to be informed and silenced. The assumption that I can know what you hear when I speak to you can only lead to the silence of obedience. This is a circumstance no different in principle from speaking to a computer capable of repeating all that we have said quite as we have said it. It may appear for a while, particularly if the computer is very sophisticated, that I'm having a kind of conversation with it. I'm giving it instructions, and it's responding very much as attentive and obedient students might, achieving facility with technical and difficult words and seizing hold of the basic thought patterns. What will become evident shortly is that this is not a conversation at all. For the reason that the computer can say nothing back to me, which I do not already understand, which in fact, I have not already said myself. I'm not talking with the computer, therefore, so I'm not talking with the computer, therefore, but with myself. And since talking with myself, I already know what I'm about to say, I have no reason to say it, and therefore cease talking altogether. Indeed, strange and even paradoxical as it sounds, I can talk with you only if I do not know in advance what you understand when I speak. Only when I cannot know in advance what you'll do with my words. In genuine conversation, we speak words and sentences to each other over which we have abandoned all control. <clears throat> in fact, I do not even know what I've said <clears throat> until I learn what you have done with what I have said. The most creative conversations will therefore occur only where persons address those areas in each other most completely unknown to the speaker. Creative because then each response must be a kind of surprise for the speaker, <clears throat> a discovery of something that could not otherwise be known. This is really no different from saying that creative conversation occurs when people speak, each, speak to each other as though they were truly listening to 
listening to and not simply recording what the other is saying. In other words, if you're listening to me, it is you listening and it is you who respond. You're not responding according to my signals as though I had you programmed. If I can control what you hear or how you respond, it's no longer you listening. <clears throat> the question is, how can we speak to persons whose minds are a cipher to us? The answer is that we can speak to persons only to the degree that their minds are a cipher. The most important implication of this answer is that if I cannot close your mind to the shape and content I desire it to have, I must keep my own mind open to your response. The reason this is so very important is that keeping myself open to your response is indispensable to life itself. When I can no longer respond to you or to anyone else, I'm effectively dead. My inability to know in advance what you will do in response to my words and actions is not a hindrance to the smooth operation of my life, but an invitation to increasingly uh, having growth and vitality. This also means, of course, that every overture to you, every word, entails something of a risk, a letting go of my control over the situation. It is a willingness, in other words, to listen. Genuine conversation implies a relationship of radical trust, as I've described it. It should be apparent that I'm appealing here to the distinction made in the first meditation between the kinds of speaking that correspond to the silence of obedience and the silence of expectation. These two ways of describing language are by no means original with this meditation. They're taken from two classical theories of language, one that has its first significant expression in Plato and one most fully stated in the work of uh, Wittgenstein in this present century, although at this point now, the last century. I shall integrate these theories into the discussion by referring to the theatrical and the dramatic use of language, terms not borrowed from the philosophers, but adapted playfully from the motif of this meditation. Now, when we speak theatrically, we've already determined what the auditors or audience are to hear. We deliver our speech as though it were a script. It is the case, to be sure, that actors do not know their audience personally and are therefore speaking to hidden minds. The audience is silent and it's listening. However, it's also the case that the art of acting requires one to take the side of the audience. That is to be uh, that is to be one's own audience, both speaking and observing oneself as the speaker. Indeed, this is precisely what acting is. For this reason, it does not matter which persons are in the theater, or even if anyone is there at all. The cast may perform brilliantly in dress rehearsals for, to empty seats, or even to their private dressing rooms, speaking their lines into the mirror. Their success as performers depends on the degree to which the audience can allow themselves to be represented in the actor's self-observation, not only to speak for them, but also to listen for them. When we speak dramatically, we relinquish all control over our words, and therefore cannot know in advance how they'll be received. We cannot observe ourselves in dramatic speech as though we are our own listeners, for we cannot know how we are being heard or what the 
hearers will do with what we're saying. Nor do those to whom we truly speak understand themselves to be placed before us as audience. As they listen to us, they are also preparing to respond. The audience of theatrical speech does not respond to the performers except to applaud or hiss, or indicating how masterfully the cast has responded to each other in the place of the audience. Naturally, once the audience believes that they're being addressed by the actors, they would cease being audience and would cry out to Oedipus that he's unknowingly courting his own mother. Were this to happen, we could only consider it a theatrical failure. Some years ago, near the beginning of that period, when the theater of the absurd came to dominate the off-Broadway stage in New York, my wife and I, both quite taken with a particular fashion of playwriting and acting, attending a play given a, given a tiny theater by a group quite unknown to us. As it happened, there were only two actors, also unknown to us, performing all roles in, in the play. The energy of the two players, a man and a woman, was phenomenal. They were not on stage five minutes before they became involved in a passionate, fast-paced verbal confrontation with each other that had all the theatrical signs of physical threat. They were wonderfully inventive in the irrationality of their exchanges. In spite of the fact that it was not possible to make the least sense of their altercation, it felt remarkably real. I still remember the excitement of it, even if I never found the thread of their menacing discourse. But then, something happened that disturbs me to this day. The actor suddenly broke away and came downstage towards the audience, while the actor sustained his verbal barrage with scarcely a pause. The actress, speaking directly to the audience in a subdued but intense voice, said, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm distressed to tell you that this man is having a nervous breakdown. He's lost all capacity for rational action, and I'm afraid something violent will happen, either to me or to you. And therefore I ask you, please leave the theater. The audience sat transfixed. The actress searched our faces in apparent desperation, a brilliant performance without question. Please, I beg you, leave the theater. This is not part of the script. This man is dangerous. For your own safety, leave at once. Embarrassed glances were shared throughout the house, and the actor continued to rave, unaffected by the woman's remarks. But no one moved. One person began vigorously to applaud, but stopped when the actress held up a hand. She repeated her plea. Here and there, the audience began to stir. I looked at my wife to see her reaction, and without a word, she rose and started walking out. Someone followed her. I began to worry that the actress would lose her audience, and hesitated, but then followed my wife. Listen to me, please listen, she pleaded. We all left, but not one member of that audience reached the street certain that they should be there. In fact, no one spoke. Each of us made our separate way into the night. I take it that the play closed shortly after that, for I never saw another notice for it, and since it was a modest production to begin with, it was never reviewed. To this day, I do not know whether the actress was speaking theatrically or dramatically. I do not know if her words were script or address. Was she really asking us to leave, or was she acting out of her request? Did she observe herself so carefully as to know how her words were being received?
Or was she putting herself in our hands? Were we audience or listeners? Could she have done the same scene in rehearsal before an empty house? What's disturbing about this experience is not the danger the audience or the actress might have been in, but the impossibility to tell whether it was a theatrical or a dramatic event. The question disturbs because ordinarily we have no difficulty in distinguishing between the theatrical and the dramatic gesture. There are many occasions in the lives of all of us when we intend to communicate a certain meaning to others, altogether unconfused about the effect towards which we are aiming. On those occasions, we employ every acting technique we possess. If we become skillful enough, we may even act as though we had convinced ourselves. That actress showed every sign of believing her words. Of course, what we do know is that if she was acting, she did not believe that what she was saying. Neither do we believe ourselves when we endeavor to direct the responses of our assorted audiences according to our script. There's no question that the actress knew, regardless of our perception of what she was doing. Consider now the implications of the theatrical and the dramatic uses of language in our relation to God. There's no doubt that we can approach God theatrically, having in mind a clear script for both the speaker and listener. In this case, God becomes audience, a passive and obedient presence, an extension of our own will and mind. In the theatrical relationship, God becomes thoroughly trustworthy, but also ceases to be God. Whenever we presume to know the mind of God sufficiently to know how we are being heard, God is no longer God, and we're no longer listened to. All of our praying is in this instance just so much dress rehearsal. If we're not listened to, we're not truly speaking, but only voicing sounds into empty space. And if we're not speaking, we're isolated and closed into ourselves, slowly suffocating in our own exhalation. The same point applies to God. If God were to conduct all affairs theatrically, it would be in the mode of grand display. God would have become impresario of the universe, performing it for some audience unknown to us, or perhaps rehearsing it before an empty house. If God is to relate to us meaningfully through the spoken word, it's necessary that God be at risk quite as any other speaker. God must speak and then be silent, waiting to see what's done with those words by the listeners. But the risk for God must be a genuine risk. There must be a willingness to lose the status of God. And this is precisely what happens according to the gospel. God emptied of divinity, living in our midst and our, at our mercy. The gospel is the declaration that God has given up all forms of theatricality and has become dramatic, leaving the future radically open.